You're listening to the Outclassed Podcast with Mike Redding and Blake Seifert, exploring excellence in teaching, tech, and leadership. Welcome back to Outclassed. And we're here joined, of course, with Mike Redding from Using Technology Better. How are you, Mike? Blake, I'm a little bit depressed to tell you the truth. I've uh, just come back down the mountain, took my son up skiing. It's just untouched powder. Because of the lockdown, we've got no international tourists and I had to sit and watch in the cafe because my calf muscles still not healed. I'm glad that we're talking about something positive today. Bring me out of my spiraling depression. <laughs> well, it could be worse. I mean, at least you got to watch your son. That's a nice, a nice way to spend some time in, in supposed lockdown. I mean, we're, we're over here in, in Victoria under stage four, stage four restrictions, stage three restrictions, where we're not really supposed to leave the house unless it's for, you know, work shopping or you know chemists and those kind of things so uh yeah we're we're trying to just get through masks have now um, been made mandatory in victoria on thursday i think it is thursday morning so everyone at at school has to have masks now and uh, i think with teaching you're allowed to teach without the mask on because you've got to kind of project your voice a bit in the classroom for the year 11s and 12s that are still here but yeah we're just trying to do everything we can to kind of get those numbers down again they've sort of hit hit a plateau, but we're still having 200 or so, 300, 400 a day of infections. So, you know, things continue to develop here and and we have to keep adapting in the classroom as they do. So year seven to 10 remote learning and 11 and 12s are on site, but obviously everyone wearing a mask, which is quite sort of not, I wouldn't say confronting, but it was, it was interesting to see the whole school in masks, you know, the last couple of days, because it's just kind of really driving it home. I think it's making it real for people like this is, there is an actual uh, pandemic going on <laughs> it's sometimes easy to forget especially when you know you go back to school and it's kind of business as usual and people kind of relax a bit and this has been a reminder of you know this is a real threat we have to take it seriously and little clusters can get out of control really quickly and especially in a school of our size with 2300 kids you know we've got to be careful and really practice good hygiene and everything else yeah, it's interesting. We were joking around about it with a team because we've got a couple of team members in Victoria and um, just saying, like, just go buy a balaclava and try and wear it into the bank and see how you go. But I think the banks are all closed as well, so that's not much of an option. But it's, uh, it's a real step when they when they force you to wear a mask. I don't know. My um, rebellious nature, I think I'd rather cop a fine just to make a point. Is there many people that resisting it? or is, And who's bearing the cost of this? Is is that on the school? Is it on the individual or are the government supplying this? How's it working? Well, I'm not sure in, in terms of the schools, but I know the government has actually purchased a lot of masks, but you have to have your own mask. And it doesn't have to be a, you know, an actual face mask. You can use a bandana, you can use a scarf, you can use you know, snow scarves, those kind of things. So it's, it's up to the individual to make that happen. And it's just a sort of civil responsibility we have to bear. And, you know, it sounds... I know it sounds like a bit of a oppressive measure from the outside, but when you're in it, I, I think it does make a lot of sense. People get it. And, and I think each other, we hold ourselves accountable as well with, you know, this is what we should be doing. We sort of feel bad if we're not wearing a mask. Like I went out the other day without one. I thought I feel a little bit, bit guilty about this because everyone else is doing it and they're playing their role and I need to play mine. So I think a little bit for me, it's just about being a team player and, you know, doing what we can to help our situation, right? It's, proven that masks help so why not wear one yeah interesting when it spreads into a school so all the students are wearing them as well i assume yeah have you got a photo yes. of that that would be a, make an amazing school photo oh there'll be plenty there'll yeah. be plenty coming out um but yeah all the students wearing them and as of thursday all the the teachers have to wear them as well um at all times except for if they're 
instructing a class. So once instructions finish, the mask goes back on. I got to tell you, I, I wear a cloth one and it's, it's hard work. It yeah. uh, makes you breathe. You know, you have to push air out, out and in a little bit and you know, you get your glasses fog up, you get dry eyes cause it pushes air up, you know, past your face and stuff. So no shortage of people complaining about it. That's for sure. <laughs> but yeah. but we, we just got to make it work, figure out, figure out some solutions, some creative solutions. Yeah. I'm, I'd be interested to track it just from a society point of view how long people will put up with this. There's got to be a straw that breaks the camel's back and eventually people are just going to go, you know what? I'm done. I yeah. Wonder, that's kind I'm of my question that point is, is what, what's, what do we do in a year? Okay. So the vaccine's delayed and we're still, you know, well, there isn't a vaccine and we're waiting in a year's time. Are we still going back into lockdowns? Like can the economy hit a point where we can't do that anymore? People mm. just have no money and the government can't keep giving out money. So you know, do we have people starving? Do we have people unable to get their elective surgeries? We call elective, right? But that's, you know, that's like knee reconstruction. That's things that actually stop people living their lives or doing their job mm. and those kind of things. So, uh, you know, I think this can go on for a while, but I, I just don't know what that looks like in 12 months. And I worry that people, you know, I'm very fortunate. I'm in a privileged position, but people that need to go out and work that can't, mm. I think would get quite frustrated and I can understand them wanting to just go out and get back to work. Yeah, it's interesting. It's causing a lot of discussion to come up around the place too. I saw a tweet this morning by Will Richardson. He's a, I guess, one of the guys who looks a lot at, you know, school renewal and changing education paradigms and things like that out of the US. And he he started asking the question about like what's what is the point of school in one sense? Is it about personal success? Is it about that kind of pursuit, or is it? you know, pursuing the public good of what's best for community. And I thought that was an interesting way to frame this up. Like in all of this chaos and madness and and so on, what is the role of school in all of this in terms of producing students? Is it still the priority still about personal success and pursuit of that? Or is it about, okay, what does society need going forward? And do we need to look at that? And I don't know there's a a quick and easy answer to it, but I thought it was a a great um, provoking thought or question around that, if, especially if you're thinking through what, what's happening post-COVID around education and what does school look like post this? Um, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about this a lot. And I, one of the things I found interesting is between the lockdowns we had here, uh, how quickly things went back to normal and people kind mm. of just got very relaxed and, you know, went back to limited hand washing and, you know, things just kind of slipped back into normal very quickly, especially for younger people. And uh, I'm interested to, interested to see everyone says, oh, the world will never go back the same. Mm. I think if the vaccine comes out in the next 12 months and people can get that shot and go back to work, I, I think things will go back uh, very similar to how they are now. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to watch. It's just a law of physics. Hey, things always come to a place of rest unless you put energy into it. And if people have got no energy left to keep pushing, then things are going to rest. They have to settle. It's just, it's just how the way the world works. Water runs down the mountain the easiest way and finds the easiest path. So I think that's, that's sort of my prediction. (laughs) I hope I'm wrong, but that's where I think we're headed. Yeah. And I think we're in a time we've been talking about this as a team a lot with the businesses that we work with, not so much in education, although I guess it is a theme for, education but we're looking very much at how do you go from survival mode to thrive mode so i think a lot of businesses have done what they've had to do to survive this time but now they're going okay so now we need to change our mindset into how do we thrive in this environment not just survive it and hope for everything to go back the way it is the wheels turn a little bit slower in uh, in education around that but yeah i think there's a lot of people asking questions what does what does this look like what is the new normal 
and you know, where do we resettle after all of this? And quite interesting leading into today's conversation today, we're talking again around that one of the elements around the seven elements of school transformation. And one of those elements is community engagement and how we bring community on the changes that we're seeing and uh, start to work with the community uh, that, you know, that we serve. And it's, it's quite interesting because I was talking to a school principal yesterday and uh, he's post COVID. He's one of their things. And I mean, they've been working towards this for a while. So this is not a knee jerk reaction, but one of the things they observed with their students was the fact that, when the students were working from home, they had a lot of autonomy and independence, right? So they got to choose when do they eat lunch, when do they work on which tasks and so on. And so they saw, generally speaking, across the school, a great uptake around that engagement level of things and and so on. And so they're looking at ways to bring that back into the school. So post lockdown, uh, and this is a New Zealand school, so they're all back and have been for 11 weeks now or so, they don't have bell times anymore. So this is a primary school, so they don't have morning tea or lunch the kids take lunch when they want to take lunch and they take morning tea when they want to take morning tea and they can play outside if they want. And they've structured it so the teachers aren't on playground duty, but the teachers, there's always teachers in the playground because there'll always be kids outside, but they want to turn that playground time into learning time as well. So there are teachers there that have activities for the students to do, or they'll have you know some sort of provocative question to get them to think or to experiment or to try And so they're uh, really looking at how we change the structure of school from lessons and bell times to when a student wants to work on a particular topic, they work on it. And it seems like the, the, the teachers are fizzing. They're, they're really enjoying the freedom. They're enjoying the challenge. They're seeing the students uh, take some really positive steps in that way. But the sticking point of course, is the parents because the parents look at it and go, this is not school. And when are you sending home the home reader and where's the homework? This is not my context of school and how this works. And so uh, we had a really interesting and quite, quite a lengthy discussion around what do we do to just bring parents along the journey? Because you can't necessarily point to research because there's not a whole lot of research that says there's a lot of value in this. So you can't point to that. You can't point to past experience because you've got none of that. And you can't really talk in deep educational terms about pedagogy and teaching and learning because you need to convey it in a way that's not dumbed down, but is palatable for parents as well. So becomes quite an interesting conundrum. And then I sort of hang up on that call and then I go and see my physio and she's like, what is happening in the schools these days? Like, it just seems like the kids are playing all the time. I was asking my son, how many centimeters are in a meter? I think his son's eight or something. And he's like, oh, I don't know. He's like, how can they not know these basic facts? So she's like, oh, I've taken it on myself to, to teach my kids and make sure they're up to date. And it sort of harks back to the conversation we had last week around learning design because it's not just knowledge, but there's skills and there's mindset and all these things that the teachers are working on. But it's a complex enough if you're looking at it just in your school system, but then to be able to look at it in terms of bringing parents on that journey, that's a, that's a whole other story, hey? Yeah, lots to unpack there. That's really interesting because there are, you do get both sides of the coin in, in any school. You know, you'll have the extreme parents that are saying, you know, we want rudiments taught. And then you've got the other extreme saying, you know, I want my kids horizons expanded and those kind of things. But one place I think that's interesting, you talk about the pushback of parents and, and I think there is a lot of fixed mindset that goes on with, okay, I want to, I want my kids to have a great education, but I I know what I, in my head, what that looks like because I've modeled that of my education. So that's why the education I think typically moves so slowly. Um, but one place where I've seen it embraced is actually in, in uh, kinder where my son is at the moment. 
they they've got an educator from Japan and she's super, super enthusiastic and way down the road of project-based learning and inquiry. And they do self-directed projects. They, they are self-assembled groups. They join groups depending on which ones they're kind of hanging around with. And the great thing about kinder age is everything's fluid. There's no, there's no ulterior motives going on that the kids are just literally drawn to things they're interested in or drawn to kids that they want to hang around with. And then they form these little informal groups, which they then formalize. So the teacher just basically, their job is to stand around and watch and start formalizing groups and giving them a little something to try, a little something to work on, a provocation, sitting with them and discussing ideas and those kind of things. So it has been really well received. One of the, the interesting things is how well that's been received. And I think the big reason for that is that the the end of the line is not some assessment, some test, some ATAR or university entrance, as we've spoken about a lot, but rather, oh, I want my kids to have fun. I want them to play. Uh, I want my kids to be kids. That's that's what I want at kinder. My, my memories of kinder, you know, are very limited, but typically you're just doing fun stuff. You're doing stuff that interests you and learning along the way. So I think the one place that we will see that proliferate is in those younger years. But like anything, I think it's going to take time. It's going to take time for us to adapt to that new normal in the kinder system. Then we're seeing a lot in PYP, primary years programs where um, IB and those kind of uh, inquiry-based learning uh, systems are being implemented. So I think we will see that come up slowly through primaries. We see a lot of the, the needs of primary schools and the things that people are expecting in primary end up in secondaries, you know, after a period of time. So I think it just takes us a few cycles to actually start moving this stuff up the chain. Yeah, and I think like I'm really keen to unpack this in a real practical way today. And I think maybe the place we need to start with is that I don't know that there's a right way to do this, whatever way you're doing it. I think one of the things we need to talk about is how do we engage parents along the journey on that? Especially if you've got parents in your, if you're running the school and you're in zones and you can't select the students or students can't select you, it's basically you go to that school because you're in a zone for that school. It's not like you can design a school and then attract the type of people who are looking for that type of education you've got to you've got to work with what you've got and especially in a lot of state-based schools where a lot of the hiring and firing is still done for you the principal doesn't necessarily have a lot of choice in terms of the type of teachers they can attract it's almost it's, it's an interesting story how you how you bring people on the journey and this is where it really comes back to that educational leadership discussion hey you need to lead this thing and one of the areas that you do it need to do increasingly more, I don't know, a better or a more competent job is leading the parents through that educational change. And this is a place where I've done a lot of work. Obviously, I have my, my business that runs, you know, a lot of, well, we have software, our newsletter, we have our, you know, full, full, uh, full disclosure. I run a software business around this and our newsletter and, and some of the other uh, services we provide for schools are all based in this this connection with parents. And what's interesting is, you know, six, seven years ago when I started this, we would have to do education around why you need this, what what good communication looks like, what is a communication strategy, how do you start connecting with parents, where should you be connecting with parents, these kind of questions, and or even the wider community as well, and how, how to set up channels and think about what goes where. That that was something just not on people's minds at all. And and what's interesting is in the last sort of two years, we've just seen this huge uptick in that. People are, they're educated. They come to us knowing what they want. They just want to execute. So I think there's a, there's a growing need to, to do this. And again, I think it's actually being driven out of primaries. That's what we see at the, in the business is primaries have a far more direct connection with parents. You know, the kids are younger. They're little babies sending them off to school. <laughs> they, want to, they want to be more engaged to the point where you have class blogs and daily things. And then that slowly gets less and less. And you go into high school and they kind of fall off the map and you get a newsletter once a fortnight and, and that's about it. So uh, we're, we're seeing that 
secondaries now are more wanting to go down the road of that school app, uh, looking for more continuous communication and also a way for the parents to, to feed back, which is a very new idea that most schools don't want to know about. They just want to push things to the parents. They want them involved at an arm's length. Mm. Um, now we're seeing that coming. Well, actually, we do want direct involvement more from parents, not just through the school council, but from the parent body at large. Mm. And I think it doesn't matter which country or which state you're working in. Every school system basically requires each school to have a school improvement plan of some sort, like a strategy plan. Yeah. And every strategy plan has to have an element of community engagement in it, right? Or parent feedback. And sometimes that becomes a real cumbersome you know, thing that schools are doing because we see schools sending home paper surveys and then they've got to do all this data entry on the back end of it. And there's just some you know, much smarter ways to do it. And then also just to get feedback almost anecdotally of what are parents reading and what do they want more of and less of. And so even like we see schools that spend a huge amount of time pulling together newsletters, put it into a PDF and then print it and send it or just send the PDF, but they've got no idea what parents are doing with it in the back end. So have you got any ideas around how do you track links and clicks and, and things like that? And why does that even matter? Yeah, well, I think that's more strategic, definitely. And we we do a lot of that with because our, our platform's online, that's the big difference. And that's why we built it. Because when we looked around, we're like, well, we're sending this sort of black hole out, this PDF that how are people reading it? What are they actually looking for? We have no feedback on it at all, except for when parents ring and say the dates are wrong and they have to change it. And of course you couldn't because you've already sent it. So, so we tried to solve a whole lot of those problems and that's why, why our newsletter exists and it's online, it's up to date, it's live. You can republish changes instantly and all of that. But you know, this isn't a, this isn't an ad for my product, but it's, it's more about a, a different way of thinking about the newsletter where we have you know, stats on each page. We can look at the most popular pages over time. We can see when sending the news, when the newsletter is actually getting read, you might send it on a Thursday. You notice everyone reads it on a Saturday, right? So that helps you kind of align, line up your schedule as well of when you, you want to send it, when the best time to send it all, when it's going to be most up to date. Because you want people to read it within, you know, usually 24 to 48 hours. If they're reading it after that, chances are they're just going to skim it, uh, not really take it in because it's no longer that pertinent re relative, you know, real-time information. Mm. And so if you look at sort of you step back a bit and that, you know, that's the strategic kind of look, but what are you trying to achieve with your parent communication? Why, why communicate with parents? And this is a really good question to ask in a school because a lot of the time they don't want their parents involved. Why are they sending out a fortnightly newsletter? What's the point of it? They can get it on the news feed in their student management system or whatever. But what we know is that from a macro view, if you want student achievement to really do well in your school, you know, John Hattie's uh, research around this, the effect size of, the effect size of your home life, uh, your socioeconomic status, your welfare recipiency, your family structure, uh, your parental involvement particularly, is is quite large i think it's 0.31 or something like that on the effect size so if you want to make a difference you can't just you know make have good teachers have a good school and and attract good students you actually have to do that piece around parent involvement and mm -hmm. and that's how you know that's one of the the big in, big factors of um, getting your kids involved getting the students involved in their classes is to have productive conversations at home around studies around extracurricular activities and model to the parents what it is your school's about, what are your values and how do you take those from just ideas and actually model them and demonstrate them through a newsletter where the parents can then reinforce them, you know, around the dinner table. I think there's two main whys, like two main reasons why you would have any kind of parent 
communication at all. One would be to cast vision. So you look back at your vision and go, okay, what is this about? What's our learning design about? What's the, what's the vision and the culture of our school and start to communicate that so that your parents and your wider community, and this is not just parents. Like I thoroughly believe like you should be doing what you can do to engage in the wider community because there's so much resource in the wider community that if they just knew what you're doing and a great job, uh, what a great job you're doing, they'd probably support it. So uh, I think it comes back to casting that vision. And then it also, there's a second element to it, which is around parent education. So not so much parent information, but more educating the parents around why. So why these devices, why this type of learning, why do we, you have all these parents that, you know, they're logging in on seesaw apps, for instance, and they're just getting bombarded with random bits of artwork and this and that and stuff that's happening in the classroom. But the teacher doesn't understand the vision and then the vision's not being communicated through the teacher. So I, when we work with schools on this, one of the things we always try and do is a set the vision and then B have the staff understand the vision and then all communication lines up around that. So here's a great example of a student agency. Here's a great example of grit. Here's a great example of, you know, whatever that mindset or skill set or knowledge base that you're trying to, to show. So then you can celebrate the wins around that as well. And then the parents start getting on board because they, now it's not just a whole bunch of information coming at them. Hey, we're doing this kind of learning and this, we're trying to change their minds on it but we're, we're demonstrating the results of it. We're showing them the benefits of it. And um, I think that's where when you start to monitor what's getting read and you can start to say, okay, here's a hot point. Here's an interest point. Let's double down on that, for instance. And so, yep. so uh, I think, I think if you keep the two main issues in why, then the rest, the hows and the what start to, to flow on the back end of that. Yeah. And there's also an element there of you, you're trying to build trust. So you're trying to demonstrate that your school is competent, mm-hmm. um, that you can do a good job and, and that you're organized and what better way to do that than have, you know, a newsletter that goes out on time or a, an apps, you know, app notification that is always ahead of what's going on and giving people the right information when they need it. Mm-hmm. That gives you a sense of, okay, I'm, cause you're entrusting, you know, parents have to trust the school to look after their kids. So there's a, there's a big trust factor in there as well um, that you're trying to kind of, improve uh with with these tools and you know you've got multiple tools you've got social media you've got uh, your school apps you've got your school management systems that usually have a news feed of some sort you've got um obviously the newsletter you've got other platforms like video platforms youtube these kind of things you've got your traditional media so you know doing stories in the in the paper and then you know information nights things like that we bring schools together general assemblies those kind of things they're all working towards building this kind of idea of a brand for your organization and that's really what what when we talk about parent communication i like to talk about in terms of a brand mm. you know how are you branding yourself all these things contribute to your brand it's like a big whirlpool and all these things are going into the center and that center is your brand so making sure that all of those are aligned and strategic is how you actually affect and and create and mold a brand because on a Ultimately, you're in charge of this brand. A lot of people think, oh, this is who we are. You know, well, no, you are, you are who you are because of what you do. So if you change what you do, you'll change who you are. So making sure that, you know, you are strategic in which platforms you decide to go on and why you're on those platforms, I think is critical. And when we talk about vision, you know, saying, oh, I want to communicate my vision. Well, a lot of people say, okay, great. Let's have a website on the homepage. It's going to say our vision is to, you know, give her the best opportunities for every student that comes to our school. Okay. Well, I haven't built trust. I haven't shown that I can do that. Why would I believe that? 
you know, to me, that just looks like people blowing smoke. So, so what we, we tell schools is don't just talk about your vision. Yes, there's a time for that. You have to educate your, your parent body about why you're doing things and talk about it in literal terms. Mm-hmm. But what you should do is, is, like you said, you know, look for those, those examples of grit or respect or integrity or whatever your core values of the school are and then hold those up high in a showcase. And that's why you, your website your newsletter, those places should be a showcase. And you've really got to separate those showcase places from the operational places, which are your school apps, you know, your student management systems. They're for getting work done. They're for like notifying a parent they need to pay for an event. You want to keep that stuff separate and not muddied by the real celebratory showcase. Here's what the school's about. Here's what makes us great. Here's where we can really deliver and and impact your student. So that's kind of how I like to think about it is, is there's the showcase stuff and there's logistical operational stuff. Yep. And I'd even take it one step further than that in the sense that perception's reality, right? So especially in a high school, if you've got parents barely stepping foot on a, on the property, but yet they've still got a perception. So when you're talking about brand, I can just see some school leaders like just going, Oh, yep. Come back to me when you want to talk about something that's not marketing or not business or that you're in the business of casting vision and people have got a perception about what's going on in the school. And especially when you talk to your kids, you say, how, you know, what did you do today? And you, your child says nothing. And then especially with computers, right? You, you're used to be able to saying, well, take out the book and let me have a look at what you've done today in your, in your exercise books. But there aren't any of those anymore. God help you if you even know how to log in a drive and see the most recent documents the students worked on. So it's the best you can go on is what the t- student tells you. And then it's just like these parents get together in groups at the soccer field or cricket field or wherever, and then they talk and then they talk and they talk and it becomes Chinese whispers. As a school, I think one of your most important priorities is giving parents something to talk about, making sure it's celebrating the goodness, especially with social media. Hey, cause it, all it takes is one social media post or one photo of something happening in the school and that's gospel. But it, I would much rather have a thousand positive messages for every five negative messages coming out of the school. So you, at least you're going to be weighing up the balance of, of what's happening and at least staying in control a little bit around what the message to market's going to be. Yeah. And that's, that's the challenge. So there's sort of four rules that I like to talk about when, when you are you know, trying to affect people and their perceptions. You want to be, you know, when you're building content, you want to be thinking about these four things. You want to be succinct in what you're saying. So you don't want to be lengthy, especially in the world of Netflix and social media and all these amazing, engaging things. You have to compete with those now because you're online, you're another app on the home screen. So you're competing with, you know, these powerhouse apps like Twitter and Facebook and those ones we know have those addictive traits. So you've got to be succinct. You can't be, you know, a drag to go into and figure out and read. And that's one of the reasons I hate the PDF newsletter is trying to read that thing on a mobile phone, which by the way, everyone does, you know, 60% of our, of our newsletter reads are on mobile phones. And so having it succinct and easy to, to digest is number one. You want it to be relevant. So it needs to be as relevant as possible to you, the, the, the person. So if I'm, my kid's in year 12 and I'm, I see something pushed to me about year seven sport, I'm going to switch it off. I'm going to think, well, I now don't value that information as much. That app, that, that communication channel is less valuable to me. So where you can, a lot of student management systems do this, where you say, just send this to the year nine parents or the year 10 parents. I, you know, I don't, not everyone needs to know about the camp. So try and be as relevant as possible and as individualized and be consistent. So when you're talking, you know, talk with that, think about your, your vision, think about why, why you exist as a school and keep on message all the time. Consistency, consistency. You know, I want to show that, 
this is something we value here is achievement. So celebrate achievement constantly and use the same language when you're talking about it. And the last is, of course, visual. And this goes back to the same point of us trying to compete. But, you know, a picture speaks a thousand words. If you just have long, wordy paragraphs in a, in a PDF or something, uh, it's not highly engaging, but also it doesn't speak to that culture building. You don't see it. You know, it's as close as you can get. Like you said, parents are dropping their kids off and sort of seeing one part of the school and then they leave. Now you're welcoming them into other environments and using photo, of course, and video and any, any means like that you can, I think is really important, especially in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard to get parents to school. Hey, like we talk a lot with schools about just reimagining how even school assemblies go or even parent information nights. I think if we look at COVID, one of the, the good things that came out of COVID was schools starting to realize that you can set meetings with parents and, and do that online and it can be quite effective. Uh, you don't have to sit at school after hours and hope parents show up and get big gaps between your meeting and booking times. It used to drive me insane. Uh, when I'd be sitting there after hours and I had to wait till 7.30 or 8 o'clock for one last parent to struggle through, be able to do that on a time that works for you. But in terms of looking at things like assemblies and so on, I think there's a, a real opportunity for schools to reimagine how they do those through social media. And one of the things that I'm, I'm quite a fan of is schools that are creating private groups and the parents have to actually apply and they get approved into it. So there's like a vet check and it's parents only. So you don't have extended family. You don't have wider community. So you can be quite open and honest and uh, you don't have to worry about things leaking. And then just running live Facebook meetings, part of that or live Facebook video as part of the, the school workflow in terms of bringing parents in and the parents can see it live or they can just watch the recording later. And we're also seeing principals really start to take the opportunity to use these platforms one sent me a great example last week. Uh, no, the other week, just at the end of school, they just did a quick Facebook Live for parents walking around with their mobile phone, quite raw footage, uh, just talking about the long term that they've just had, uh, how you know proud they were of their parents, their students, showcasing a little bit of work, wishing everyone a great holiday. And the engagement on the back of that from parents, you know, coming back, thanking the teachers for their hard work, uh, celebrating the win, you know, talking about the vision and celebrating that. I mean, that's a win, right? So... Uh, you don't have to be doing afternoons and nights and bringing, trying to bring people away from home. It's right there in their newsfeed all the time. Yeah, you're in their lounge room on, you know, app on their home screen. So, so is that a primary school doing that? Yep, that was a primary school. Yeah. And so one of the things that principals is going to do this week is just a weekly walkabout and just have like an informal chat and just showcase some work and do a few things. Mm. And so you, you don't see a lot of that in secondary. And, and if you are in a secondary school and you're listening to this, mm the clock's ticking. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the stuff that's going to be coming your way soon. And, and it's probably not going to look exactly the same as it does in a primary setting, maybe, but uh, these are the things you've got to start thinking about. And I know a friend of mine works in a school where the principal's very tech savvy, you know, got his Surface Pro and he's always doing little video messages when, he, when they have a win at school, like the, their, apparently their basketball rings weren't, weren't uh, safe for about 12 months and he went and put them back up and they shot a little video of it, uh, shared that straight out to the community. The parents saw it. So they had, they had now a basis to talk to their students about, oh, you got a new basketball ring today, right? So it's fostering conversation at the dinner table, um, which of course we know, you know, that's what we want. We want parent engagement. We want parents to be asking about the school environment, what you're doing at school. Anything you can do in that vein is going to help students feel more connected mm. and take their studies more seriously and not feel like they can get away with things and, you know, doing a little secretive thing at school and they come home, don't you tell their parents about it. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's definitely a, a big win is to 
be on, you know, video, be on, be on a instant, you know, that, that meets those four, those four um, content rules perfectly. You know, it's succinct, it's quick, it's relevant to people. It's consistent because you're talking about your vision and it's visual because it's a video, you know, you can mm-hmm. actually see the principle and feel like you are, you know them a little bit and understand them. It's very personal medium as well. Yeah. Even the, you know, the monthly or fortnightly assembly that you're doing where kids are getting awards and, you know, sometimes parents will go and sit through an hour and a half assembly just as, for a five minute snippet. Yeah, if you know your kid's getting an award, you would probably crowd around at your office and get everyone, <laughs> bring everyone over to come see it. Yeah, uh, and and that's the thing. People say, "Oh, why aren't why aren't we uh, broadcasting our assemblies?" You know, often teachers and parents, and I'm keen to hear what you think, Mike. Why why they don't? But the the concern is around. Well, I don't want my parents that involved, or I don't know what they're going to do with it in the community. And even if you like that, I say, you know, just okay. Well, don't don't share the recording. Just do it live. You know, then no one's got it recorded. No one can play funny business with it and make memes from it. Some people can, but you know, you're reducing that risk a lot. So, you know, just start with that and then see if like, maybe you want to cut up clips and and start sharing those. So at least it gives you options. Whereas if it's kept as a secret and people just experience it and it's done, I feel like you're not getting the maximum bang for buck. You put so much effort into these things and to not have them kind of, you know, what are you talking about in assemblies? You're talking about, vision you're inspiring students you're celebrating achievement you're doing all the things that you want to be doing you know impacting parents with you might as well uh, share it with parents yeah and i think if i'm a principal and i'm looking at this now and i'm all of a sudden i've got an audience you're going to sharpen up your presentation as well it's not going to be one of these sloppy kind of things that you do and just roll the punches because it's just the kids or whatever so uh, even at the end even at the end when they talk about you know the the dry stuff the uniform policy and stuff hmm. That's even good as well. That just is another set of ears listening, another set of eyes watching and helps you kind of move the ball on, on your school policies as well. Yeah. I think if you do it in a safe way, sometimes they're concerned. Like a lot of the questions we get is around security policy, all of that sort of stuff. There's some kids that you can't have photographs. So we talk about just put some tape on the floor and you have some chairs in a particular room and you, everyone knows that the video is not allowed to go to that part of the room. So those kids are completely anonymous that uh, we you don't need high tech that's another question you need like how much camera equipment and mixing desks and mm. you don't need any of that you just need an ipad or an iphone basically on a tripod and just have a student run it there's not so what do you do when, when those kids that can't be on film receive an award yeah so that's that's an interesting one so we've had a couple where they've just gone we're not going to um, demonstrate this this week and this is his way uh, we also had one that just said we're just going to turn the camera off and um, the mic says it's just going to go black for a little minute, but this is why. And then they come back on. So there's been different ways that we've sort of coached schools through that. And it's but, happening you know, less and less as well. Like the, yeah. we've noticed the inquiries we get around photos and how we exclude people and stuff from my business. That was really big about five years ago. I don't think mm-hmm. we've had a question on it all year yeah. this year. So I think schools are getting better at managing it, but also I think it, there's less and less um, pushback in the community about it. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be high tech. It doesn't need to be high production quality. It's not Hollywood. It's, you know, it's just authentic and real. And the, and the, I think the parents enjoy it. But if you think about the whole, the messaging about why the how will take care of itself later and then just figure out which part of that do you want to go out into the wider public? We had a, a school in New Zealand find all sorts of resources just because they started to do community engagement really well. They had parents who are experts in different fields in coding and so on come in and start running coding clubs. Uh, There was another school down on the South Island of New Zealand where 
uh, the parent realized that there was some students who didn't have devices and there was an equity divide. And so that parent just went and bought devices for the school and just said, here, give these to the kids. I've got some spare cash lying around. I want to contribute. I'm seeing the value of what's going on and I don't want these kids missing out. So the school got fully funded one-to-one. Now, it's a smallish kind of school, but parent just paid for all the devices for all the kids who didn't have to have one or didn't, couldn't afford one. Now, that would never have happened if they weren't doing community engagement well because no one knows the need. No one knows the vision. And so you just start to share those things and then you'll start to get that buy-in. So, yeah, I guess maybe a little bit of homework for everyone listening is just to look at your last five bits of communication of gone home to, to parents or wider community and run a bit of an audit on it and run it through, you know, Blake's four-step process or um, the characteristics of that or look about how much of it is about information versus education and how much of it is just reporting that information or casting vision and run a bit of an audit of it and see where you can do a little bit of a checkup and, and see where you can improve. Yeah. Sounds good. Was there anything you wanted else to add around that whole community engagement piece, Blake, before we run on to chatting about what's in the news? I don't think so. I think it's just, it's just about thinking about how people, and one thing I'd leave everyone with is about that uh, way people feel about your school, you know, and it's a dirty word branding in schools, but Mm. that's what branding is. It's essentially a feeling people have about your school. So what feeling do you want people to have? Start thinking about how you would get there and, and shaping that vision and, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy because you are, you are competing with so many other apps and, and distractions and, you know, the human, I think the human attention span has gone down to like eight seconds or something, which is less than a goldfish. So, you know, we're, we're jumping around from app to app and everything else. So you've got to really be sharp and concise and have a real strong strategy around it if you want to do it well. And the only other thing I'd mention as well around social, I get a lot of questions, well, what do we do with social media mm. is just, if you're probably starting out on this journey, I would leave social media to the side for the moment. And the reason for that is if you want to manage it, I like to think about the analogy of a cocktail party. And if you go into a room of, you know, a hundred people, there's going to be clusters of people who are already having discussions. And this is the way you think about social media. There's clusters of groups, all of them having their own discussions and in their own kind of themed groups. And then if you come in from the doorway and just shout, Hey, look at my school. Here's what we're doing. And then leave. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't really work in a, in a social setting. What does work is meeting those groups at their conversation. So if they're talking about, you know, like you were saying, um, you know, what's happening in schools these days, you know, we're all playing all the time. There's going to be a group for that. That's a place your school could perhaps inject some information uh, or if people are upset about something or need to support with something. So it's more of a conversational, you know, meeting people where they are than just a broadcast platform. People get on social and think, great, we can just broadcast our news on there. I don't think you're going to get the best response if you do that and the best results. The best way to do that is to have a, a media officer that's actually going and looking at the conversations on the web, correcting issues, helping people find the right information about your school, uh, sharing out stuff in the right forums, in the right places. So that's the social question. Uh, we get that a lot, but there's a lot more to it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And if anyone wants to hear a little bit more about this, I have a, a speech I can share in the show notes uh, from future schools where I spoke about this kind of at length and broke down, you know, the operational content and the, the celebrational content and the culture building content and how you build that stuff out and the strategy around it. So uh, I will link that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Great. I think that's a um, very important point just to, to think that through, Hey, especially around that social media point of view, find out where your parents are hanging out and go there first. Yep. And, um, find the one that's most appropriate for your community. So that's great. If anyone wants an audit on that, by the way, too, just um, go to the usingtechnologybetter.com website and go to contact us and 
just ask more than happy to have a quick look at your systems and super important conversation to be having. Hey Blake, because if you think about how much money schools spend on communication every year, whether it's school apps, school website, the wages of staff to pull everything together and to publish all this stuff, it adds up. Uh, so you might as well, you know, really make sure that that investment in time and resources put to the best use. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and, you, know, you think it's a big investment, so you want to do it right. It's not just the, the media officer at the school or the, the, the person in the, in the office who's, who's organizing it. It's also uh, the teachers who are writing the articles. You know, you don't want those to go into a black hole and see, not see the light of day because they know that. They know that, you know, that, that will soon become uh, known that, oh, oh, yeah, I write this thing for the newsletter. It's a pain because no one ever even reads it. So what kind of effort are you going to put in there? You're going to put less and less effort in and it's just kind of a perpetuating cycle that doesn't bear any fruit for your school. So I think it's really important to prioritise it, do it right, make it as, as available as possible and, you know, try and follow some of those, those guidelines. Perfect. Excellent. Let's uh, chat about some of the stuff that was in the news this week. I saw Google made a big announcement around Hangouts Chat. Yes, they did. So Hangouts Chat was one thing where they've stepped up the, the migration to it. And we've spoken about that previously on this podcast about Slack and Microsoft Teams and, and Google kind of being this the weaker force in terms of their chat offering and their real-time communication offering. They don't have much that's got the productivity tools and the kind of business tools built into it. They have their chat platform, which hasn't really been updated for a while. And they're starting to roll that out now in light of this new integrated workspace that's coming. So on July 15th, they announced on their, on their blog about an integrated workspace for G Suite, which basically takes Gmail, takes where you are already and puts four tabs across the bottom and on your phone, or I think they're on the side on the web where you have mail, chat, rooms and meet. So meet's going to become really a central figure inside of G Suite, not just for COVID, but beyond this isolation stuff, we want to, um, we want to have, I guess they want to have it as a centerpiece and a central thing for businesses and schools to use. So, so big implications for G Suite schools. How are we going to manage this? What do we, what do we think about it? And I mean, it's lucky for me because we're already down the road with this. We know what uh, we're trying to achieve when it comes to, uh, you know, real-time collaboration and the the output we want from this. Um, So, you know, I'm excited about it. I want to see what it actually is. I hope there'll be more details coming soon. And I hope that it might fit the needs of us in terms of why we were looking at Slack or Teams and those kind of things, because obviously it's baked right into that experience. And they're doing some really cool stuff where you can be in your email. You can open Meet in that same window. It sort of pops over your email. So you can be having a chat with someone while you're writing an email. And then if there's a doc that's included in that email, you can open that inside your email client, have multiple people working on it whilst you're on a meet call, whilst you're in your email. Mm. You know, you can jump between chat messages in there as well while you're working on the document to get information. You've got chat rooms where you can work in teams and faculties. So it's a, it's a really slick kind of way of doing it rather than it being separate and you have to click into spaces and go back out and open windows and tabs and all this kind of stuff. This way it's just instant. It's just really smooth and slick. It's yeah, hopefully it lives up to the vision they've got for it. Hey, because it, um, it's been a long time coming. And by the way, if you want to look at or listen to the episode that Blake and I unpacked all around Teams and Slack and uh, some of that was episode seven. So you can go back and grab that episode and have a listen to it. We unpack the why behind that as well and then give you uh, a little bit of features and benefits of each each of the different ones. But yeah, we've turned on the the first part of this update that's coming in terms of having the Hangouts now integrated next to your Gmail. And um, that's good. The only downside of it is you can't have uh, the old Hangout, classic Hangouts, 
chat groups, which is a bit annoying. So you've got to yeah. open that up in a new window to have that running. And I think I just had a real quick look today. I didn't have time to try and understand what was going on, but you can't use the Hangouts app, the classic Hangouts app in your phone anymore for those group chats either. So I think it's gone completely web-based. Maybe someone uh, tell me that's no, Yeah, that, that is still working. I have a family Hangout that still works as a group, but if you want to make a group in the new chat, you have to recreate the group in the new chat. It doesn't come across for some reason. So I think all of this is kind of bandaging before they make the change. Um, so I think it's all going to make sense when they release this integrated workspace where you can kind of have everything in one place. Uh, I think this is their first steps to get us ready for that, that big change. Right. So they haven't ported the old chat, the groups across. So I can't even get the old yeah. chat groups because if I go to Hangouts, it says, hey, welcome to the new chat, open up chat, and it won't let me go back to the old version. Ridiculous. Oh, really? No. I've, well, oh, yeah, because I haven't done that on my personal account. I've only done it on my work account. So, yeah, once you go into the new chat, you're in there. Yeah. Yeah. Your groups, you have to recreate them. You have to go create a group, um, yeah. add people back in, and then and keep going. So there must be some incompatibility there with their new uh, chat system. No, I would have hoped they would have had two separate chat. I would have been happy with two different Hangout buttons even. Yeah, well, Hangouts is dying. Hangouts is is being sunsetted. So, Google yeah. Chat is the way forward. Yeah. So, obviously, they're trying to they're trying to clean out the old stuff, which is a pain for all of us. Um, but I think it's going to be good. Like, we're going to have rooms in our inbox. We're going to have chat in our inbox. And the rooms now they don't just have not just a simple chat room. They also have a files tab. So, any files you share in there will get grouped into a tab where you can see them, and a tasks tab, which is really interesting. So. You can write a task and, and assign it to somebody um, and have a due date on it. So that's really handy if you're working in a faculty and you say, right, you know, John, it's your, your job to go update the Google site and we're going to have that done by next meeting, which is, you know, in two weeks. Put a due date in there and people can just go into that uh, room to see all the action items from last week's meeting or whatever it may be. Yeah. So pretty interesting. I'm keen to have a play with it and I hope it comes out pretty soon. It's going to have some big ramifications, I think, in schools. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, we've got it turned on, mm. so we'll just keep monitoring and keep playing with it and um, we'll see see how we go. Also, in the in terms of that new updates as well, it was super interesting to just start digging into it. I don't know if you played much around with the new iOS updates that have started coming out and I know you've mentioned a couple of things in terms of the spacing of that around touch on a Mac. You think it's going that way, but even just more pen support that seems to be coming in on iOS now. Uh, so definitely another device that's coming into that place where digital inking is going to become more and more important and just being able to work in one app and flick it through to the next app and so on. So from all the reports of our Apple trainers, they're saying it's still a little bit buggy, but they're pretty pleased with what they're seeing in terms of what's coming down the line. Uh, for well, still device. in beta, I think. I don't think it's yeah. out yet. So that would make sense to, to be a bit buggy, but Apple are good. They They just chip away and iterate these things and get them stable. So... Yeah, that's going to be interesting, the, the pen stuff, whether that will come to Mac as well. And I know they've yeah, expanded where any text inputs or any search box or address bar, you can just click on with your pen and actually write in it. Yeah. And then it OCRs it straight into a into a word or, what, or URL or whatever you've written. So, mm. yeah, I'm interested to watch that space. And pen's always been interesting, an interesting place for me. And certainly with uh, remote learning, I, I've said on the podcast before, I think pen was one of our biggest misses um, in, in terms of personally in our school, mm. where... Uh, a lot of teachers were left kind of, okay, well, I've got maths correction to do or I need to do something that really requires me to write. They were going back to, you know, filming with their phone, them writing on a piece of paper rather than having that stylus input and being able to, you know, watch it being written and have some of those cool tools. So 
So Penn, I think, is going to become big, especially if this remote learning theme continues. Yeah, that's not going away, that's for sure. Uh, Blake, wins and fails. I saw uh, you've picked up something around what happened with Twitter and so on. Yeah, well, I mean, I think my win is is Google getting into the productivity space. So we'll get that out of the way. I'm there with uh, you on excited that about that. And the fail, big fail for me is this Twitter attack that happened, I think it was the start of the week or, or was it early last week? I can't remember now. But yeah, I just don't know what day it is at the moment. Last week it was. Where a whole lot of accounts got hijacked um, and they were tweeting things out for buying Bitcoin and all sorts of stuff. And, the, and it's been a, been a growing sort of swell on Twitter where they're having trouble stopping scammers and stuff. I've noticed as well, I follow Elon Musk on Twitter. And if you ever look through his comments, there's a lot of people called Elon Musk that have taken his profile picture and put it in there. Yeah. And they're saying something along the lines of what Elon's talking about. And then they'll say, uh, you know, sign up for my early release. And there's a Bitcoin address there. So there's people kind of impersonating. That's been going on for a long time. But the, this has been like a more of a targeted attack. And they're not really sure how it happened, to what extent Twitter's own systems may have been compromised, like internally. But the hack appeared to have subsided. They actually turned off all the verified, or a large number of verified accounts from being able to tweet, uh, which is a huge step. Uh, People weren't too happy with that. And yeah, they're just investigating. So uh, Jack Dorsey's got his got his work cut out for him. He's the CEO of Twitter, who, by the way, is a part-time CEO. He's also the CEO of Square. You may have heard of the payments platform. There's mobile payments on the iPhone. They're a huge company. And that's where most of his revenue comes from as well. Most of his net worth is from that company, not from Twitter. So I wonder if this will be the final straw in uh, getting him booted out of the company. I don't know what the board are going to think of this. Well, that was a big move to move him on, wasn't there? It's going back yeah. a couple of months ago. I'm not know that through. But uh, yeah, and, and I mean, we were talking about this off air before we started recording and I just mentioned, I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but just a, a YouTube video, the Joe Rogan podcast where he had Jack Dorsey and I think it was Tim Paul, is that his name on the show mm-hmm. where they were talking about censorship and how do they ban people on Twitter and, you know, it goes in depth to their thought process behind it and bias and political bias and all sorts of things are in there. I think both of these cases would be a really interesting one for high school students to look at the ethics of, of technology in, in society, not just how to lay down some lines of code and make things look pretty and user interface and function and so on, but thinking through the ethics and, and how do you make decisions and social impact. So if you're looking for two case studies on this for your computing science classes, then I think uh, these two links will be a great one. Just go and grab them from the show notes. You'll be able to find them at usingtechnologybetter.com forward slash episode number 15. Yep. Absolutely. There's so much to unpack in that. And, and that Joe Rogan episode is really interesting because it, it underscores how difficult it is to vet content accurately and fairly, how to mm. not be, how to be impartial, how to not be swayed by one particular view or another, but be actually impartial to the situation. And, and in some ways, by, by being impartial, you can actually enable bad actors on your platform as well. Yeah. So they, they can take advantage of any kind of opportunity uh, that you give them. So it's extremely difficult and a big challenge. And if big companies like Facebook who throw, you know, billions of dollars at this can't get it right, uh, you wonder what's going to happen as, you know, technology proliferates and the next billion people come online, how, how we manage this at even bigger scale. Yeah. I think for me, just following in on that, just around bias and so on, I think you sent through an article today from the Herald Sun. I reckon this is a fail big time where it says okay. school diversity war and it talks about in the curriculum, they've got white straight, um, straight male bias in the curriculum. 
I was just thinking, man, there's so many things that it talks about how education researchers have gone through and they've had a look at the curriculum in, in Melbourne schools. And a lot of it is biased around this male, white, straight, you know, authors and so on. And I just think, man, of all the things that we could be talking about right now and all the things that could be helping education, I don't feel like this is something that really is going to move the needle on educational outcomes, regardless of where you're at. So it's interesting to me that people get caught up in these culture wars and political bias and, and things like that. And I'm wondering at the end of the day, like boots on the ground at the coalface, what, what difference is it actually going to make? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Blake, but I just think, man, there's got to be a better way to spend our time and energy and effort. Well, I think it's important we have these voices. It's important we do challenge the norms. I mean, you wouldn't want a world where no one challenges, you know, the, the curriculum and says, well, it's, it's fine. We'll just move on. But what, what's your concern with, with that kind of work? Is it, is it because the solution would be impractical? Is that the problem? I think it's a bit of a distraction to what teachers are doing right now. So, you know, when you're going down the line of, inequality and and so on i'm all for it i mean but i don't think the fact that you're studying let's say english for instance if you had to study a book that was written by a male and then we got to balance it out by a female then we need to have another one by someone who's gender fluid and then we'll need another one by an indigenous person so that it's all equal and i don't know that that necessarily adds to the educational value of what's going on i think there's more to education than you know, some of these cultural wars and, and, and so on. So I think if you had a good case for a, a text to be included, not because of indigenousness or because of gender bias or any of that sort of stuff, just because of the, the education that was in it. And I understand gender influences opinion and, and so on, but attack it from that point of view and say, well, here's some flaws that we fundamentally see in this text. And we found that there's this other text which looks at it in a different way and let's put this one forward as an like as an alternative, then that's a conversation I'm willing to have. But when you lead the conversation with, and it's part of its news headline grabbing, I get that. But the whole, if you lead with diversity, I think it's an empty conversation to be completely honest. Fake news, Mark. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go as far as saying fake news. I'd just say misaligned intentions. Like the intentions are good. I'm all for improvement. That's one of our core values as a company is make it better. We're always looking for, to make things better. Uh, as a teacher, I was always looking for new stimulus material uh, to to have conversations with. And I know it sounds, you know, people want to shout you down for having opinions, but like I'd rather them look at the, the educational value of what they've got and come up with an alternative rather than just crying gender inequity. Um, I, I just feel like it's a miss. Too many, yeah, white, straight male authors in the curriculum. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I like my thoughts on it are, I think it's important we explore themes and those themes should be diverse. It should be uh, culturally different to what we just see. I mean, a lot of the, the talk in this article is about Aboriginal studies and I think that's super important as well, but not just in our country, but I think we should be looking at other countries, looking at, you know, like if you look at it, Americans, they often only learn American history, not much of other, you know, we learn a lot of European history, but you know, just co-worker of mine's from Iran and I'm realizing how little I know about the Middle Eastern cultures and things like that. So I think it's about uh, having a, you know, not doesn't have to be perfectly even, but having a nice, diverse reading kind of text curriculum where there's plenty of uh, choice in there. There's plenty of ability to uh, be exposed to different cultures and get interested in different 
parts of the world and cultures in the world. But ultimately, the texts are there to serve other purposes. Usually, they're usually there to help you identify ways of being analytical in reading or problem solve or do things like that or give you skills and those kind of things. So, I think texts should be awarded on merit on the themes they explore. Yes, but how well they explore them, how many questions, good questions they're asking of the of the reader and those kind of things. So. For me, it's really about a merit-based system that has a good proportion of diversity in it. And I, I honestly think something like this, I think it comes across a little inflammatory, but I think it's good that we have people doing this kind of work, whether it's now or at another time, you know, maybe now is not the best time, but I think it's good that we have this kind of work going on because it does help us kind of frame some good conversations. I, like, you know, whether I agree that we should have it completely tipped on its head I don't know about that but I think you know let's have a conversation about are we happy with it or not you know I'm all about having good conversation I think the more robust a conversation we can have the better outcome we're going to have for improving things yeah totally I mean I'm all for those sorts of conversations that's why I wanted to bring it up today is just say well let's get some let's get some opinions around that mm-hmm. I mean I look if you want to look at diversity have a look at the primary school education I mean, that must be 98% dominated by female teachers. So right there, you're going to get bias. So there's bias at every level. I don't think pulling apart texts at a high school level is really going to uh, make that big of a difference when there's so many different areas that we could be addressing in there. And I, not that I even think that there's a, a problem with a main, mainly female workforce in the primary school. I'm just saying it's just another area. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the goal is either. Like, the, you know, they're sort of saying, well, we're trying to escape the comfort of, our, you know, our, our teachers' literary histories. In other words, not just repeating the same thing that our teachers have done for 25 years or whatever. But uh, is that the goal? What's, what, why is that a problem? You know, what are we trying to achieve? I think that's what I'd be more interested in. What, what is the outcome that we're looking for here? Yep. I think this brings us full circle right back to where we started at, right? So regardless of what your vision is or where you're trying to go on it, it's about communicating for change and it's about taking people on a journey to understand the why behind what you're doing. So yeah, interesting times. It's always great chatting to you, Blake. Looking forward to wrapping up this little series or mini series we've got going on in the next couple of weeks around the seven elements of school transformation. And just a reminder, if you want to go back and have a look at those different elements, uh, you can head back through some of the different episodes where we unpack each of those different elements and just a reminder just keep your eye on each one of them because they are all important and you can definitely do some work around just making sure that you're improving in each one of these so we kick off the the little mini series at episode number 11 if you've got any contributions you want to make to the podcast there's different ways you can get in contact with us too so you can use the outclass podcast hashtag you can send us a message via the usingtechnologybetter.com website they will even see a button that says leave us a voicemail if you like and we might play that in a future episode uh, blake any final words as we wrap up no, that's it from me mike looking forward to uh, seeing you on the next one excellent all right have a great week Thanks for listening. For more episodes and show notes, visit utb.fyi forward slash outclassed.